Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Simon Rinney, host of the Mindful Men podcast, a show with a mission to help men open up about societal expectations and their own experiences surrounding masculinity. Simon joins me from the Gold Coast of Australia and is a fierce advocate for men who desire and need emotional support. Simon's also a social worker with 15 years experience in the Australian public service. Welcome to the show, Simon, and thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Hi, Nikki. How are you going? I'm really excited to be here. I would love for you to start by sharing a little bit about how you came to create Mindful Men. I know that this is a very personal and passion-filled project for you. Yeah, so Mindful Men started as an Instagram page about oh, a year and a half, two years ago. I experienced burnout pretty significantly. I was working full-time, studying a master's degree in social work part-time. We had two kids under three and COVID lockdown. So in Australia, we all got locked down for four, five, six months. And I basically hit a brick wall, both physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, everything. And I couldn't function. So as part of my recovery process with my therapist, we were looking at ways of reintroducing joy into my life. And I got this burning desire to start talking about what burnout is because I'd never experienced it before. And I thought I'd share it through an Instagram page. Initially, just some daily affirmations just to pet myself up for the day. But The more and more I got into it, the more I started sharing more personal things about burnout. And then I also thought, why not talk about my other history of mental illness as well? So I've got 30 years living with obsessive compulsive disorder, depression from a bloke's perspective. So a lot of men don't really talk about mental health. And I thought, well, this is a great platform. I was really enjoying it. And so I started talking about it more. And over the years, that led to starting up the Mindful Men podcast, where I started giving voice to the essentially to the Instagram posts. And now I've got a private practice called Mindful Men, which is a dedicated men's mental health therapy business, helping guys to be mindful of who they are and how they can grow, but also applying some of those mindfulness techniques that I've learned through my social work studies as well. So yeah, that's it in a nutshell, but there's 30 years to unpack that got me to there. So let's explore it if you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to start at the root of it because you're not the only person who has these experiences. And one of the things that I found so valuable in my own journey, while it's not related to masculinity, it is, I think, that constant evolution that we're dealing with as human beings and really giving ourselves the space to acknowledge sort of the things that have been embedded in us from a very young age or from birth. And those things happen both at the familial level and the overall societal level. So I'd be curious just out of the gate, what do you think when it comes to the concept of masculinity and your own experience with your mental health, how did those sort of collide for you in terms of holding on to that instead of embracing it, acknowledging it and managing it? Yeah. So the embracing part only really came in the last, say, two years. 
through that studying social work. So what I really liked about social work was being able to look at people within contexts and understand how they're showing up, say, in family life or in society, at work and study or whatever, and how they all interrelate with each other. And that's only been like the last two years. So I'm 39 now. So it's only been the last two years that I've been able to critically reflect on this type of stuff. And it's coming out more and more, the more podcasts that I do and the more social media I do, this theme's coming out around how did we as guys, how do we become socially conditioned to be like the people we are today? And so when I take it back to when I grew up and it all starts when you grow up and where you're from. And so I grew up in the Northern suburbs of Adelaide. So that's in South Australia, very working class location. There was a car manufacturing plant there, which has since closed down. A lot of people work in trades. Like my mum was a cleaner. Dad worked at the council. A lot of low socioeconomic as well. So there's a lot of welfare pockets. So people that didn't work and they were living off of welfare pensions and or disability pensions and stuff like that. They couldn't work for whatever reason. And this is how it was happening in the 80s and 90s for me. So before social media, before smartphones. And my worldview was informed by the guys that were around me, essentially. So I grew up with a, in a household with three brothers and plus dad. And so very masculine household. And we grew up playing Australian rules football. So you're, you're exhausting yourself every day because you could run up to 10 Ks in this game. And then, but you're also getting hit from all sorts of directions. So you've got to have kind of 360 perception around you and go, what's going on? Who's around me? So you're in a position where, as you were saying, it's quite dangerous as a sport. And I think of that physically, but also with the way you're describing that hypervigilance that you need to have to play it. It's like psychologically, that's already developing a sense of needing to be physically secure, needing to make sure that you are aware in case you need to react. And mentally secure as well. So I'm a bit of a softy. So like, I'm not that hyper-masculine guy that would just like stare danger in the face and yell at it and all that type of, I'm a flight guy. I'm not a fight guy. <laughs> and, which is weird, like growing up playing football because I'd be the guy on the outside really fast and darting through players to avoid getting tackled and getting hurt. And if you did get tackled and hurt, you dare not shed a tear on, on, on the, on, unless you were really hurt, like you've broken something. But if you just got hit on the ground, you dare not to well up in the eyes, which I'd often just suck it in and hide it because you didn't want to be labeled as soft. Because from an opposition perspective, they'll go, oh, great, we're going to target this kid. He's crying. We're going to target, hurt him more. Yeah. And that's going to be cool. And then, you come off and your coach might be like, don't cry. Or your dad might be, don't cry on the oval. You suck it up. And by sucking it up, you're being a man, you're being masculine. And from a very young age, we're starting to learn this on the sports field. And so we'd come home and then we'd watch football on, on the TV. And back then, like there was no such thing as the blood rule, which you have now. So if, now if you get a cut on the footy field, you have to get taken off and get the blood cleaned up and, and so forth. But back then, You'd have players running around for 20 minutes, half an hour with blood pouring out of their faces and they would stay on the ground and they would keep playing. And so you go, okay. And then all the commentators would be like, look at this guy. He's so strong. He's so tough. He's a tough guy. They celebrate this stuff. And so we grow up going, okay, if I want to be an AFL player, I've got to be tough and I've got to be able to bleed and not worry about it and keep pushing on. And then if you add on to that, the kind of other things on TV as well. So like being the third boy in the household, like I was, Often what was like the movies that we'd watch would be dictated by my older brothers. And so we're looking at things like The Terminator and Rambo and Die Hard, Bruce Willis, Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone. These are tough guys. 
it's interesting to think about that too, how much those types of movies collide with that other part of your day where it's like you're just inundated with this mm-hmm. sense of hyper masculinities it's delivering to you a message that is not only embedded in the culture just in the day-to-day of the way you interact with other people around you but it's all over the media it's on the sports fields it's almost inescapable so feeling like you are stifling a sense of who you are because you're concern is about the perception that has to take a toll on you and it sounds like you going through this experience and just the way you're acknowledging it now that was this this build up into where you ultimately got to be able to acknowledge it yeah definitely and even into the schoolyard as well you didn't want to be looked at as the wussy kid you'd get labeled so you would get labeled as gay if you showed emotions or it would show that you were upset or you'd get labeled as a girl and as well so it's reinforced in the schoolyard particularly yeah. in a schoolyard as well where it's more overt compared to covert or like on and the footy field it's like it's there but you really recognize it in the schoolyard because you're not hyper masculine because you're not been running around and you got, haven't got adrenaline going through your your body and all that type of stuff you're like you're more of a at, at, le- at peace level i remember even being in the schoolyard probably around the age of 10 or so and, and I saw my best mate crying and I went up to him and I went into this automatic mode of guys don't cry. So I went up to him and said, mate, you got to stop crying. I don't care why you're crying. Well, I didn't say I didn't care why you're crying, but I didn't, didn't acknowledge why he was crying. I said, mate, you just got to stop crying. You got to stop it. He goes, why? I said, boys don't cry. We're not allowed to cry. We don't, we're not meant to cry. And he looked at me and said, Simon, I can cry if I want to. And that planted a seed, which has hung with me ever since of going, okay, Maybe these things I'm learning on a football field or at home or in the schoolyard, maybe that's there's not a whole lot of truth to them. Maybe there's an alternative reality, which is actually the reality that everyone's lived, but we're never taught that. So boys can cry. And if you cry, it doesn't mean you're any less of a man or a boy or human. Like you, it just means you're human. That's what I was going to say. It's yeah. like, if anything, it's an identifier of your humanity. And I think that's yeah. part of what is really interesting to hear the moment where you sort of it sounds like you started to question the indoctrination of masculinity that sort of surrounded you to have somebody point blank say to you i can do that that's happening i don't need that type of feedback on this emotional situation that i'm dealing with and it's interesting how old did you say you were do you recall i would have been around 10 years old it's interesting that you um, remember that interaction so specifically. It is, and it's not surprising in that it clearly was really significant to you, but it's interesting in that it was such a profound moment of awareness for you at such a young age. Yeah, and it, and like everything, though, got bottled up. Take it two, two years backwards to when I was eight. That's when I developed obsessive-compulsive disorder that remained undiagnosed until I was 28. And it wasn't until 28, so that's 10 years ago now. So it's 10 years this year since I've been on my recovery pathway. But it was 10 years ago that I first opened up about mental health and I could realize I could talk about it. And then through the journey from that to leading to my social work degree, which is where that seed came out again and go, I remember that, yeah, when I was 10, I had this discussion with my mate about him crying. And that's, I've since been watering that. And that's what's blossoming into mindful men, that realization that, Everything we learned <laughs> for the last 30 years about what it means to be a man, I bottled it up. I didn't know how to talk about it. 80s and 90s, we, I didn't even know. Mental health wasn't even in the dictionary you know, from my perspective. Nobody talked about it at all, not even in school, not on TV, definitely not on TV. 
definitely not in a home or on a football field or anything like that. So I didn't even know it was really a word or a phrase or a concept until a few years before I went and got that diagnosis of OCD, depression, anxiety. But you really had to draw it out of me because I was so conditioned to bottle it up and not talk about it. And I didn't know how to talk about it. And so what it came out of come out as was a lot of drinking to cope from 16 to to even today like I've used alcohol as a way to socialize and to numb everything to a point where I can relax because my brain operates so quickly that I could be on four different planets at once I understand that I had late <laughs> in life diagnosis with ADHD and I totally yeah. understand that sentiment it's it took me a while to get to a place where I could acknowledge the need to address it because yeah I think similarly on the mental health side of it, we're roughly the same age. There wasn't discussion about mental health. There wasn't discussion about emotional intelligence. Like I can like hear my parents' eyes rolling as I say the word <laughs> you, or the phrase. And it's like, they've over the years had come around and understand more about it. But it's part of that is the lack of education and awareness for people of their generation. And then there's the other part of it where it's also the way that we can share messages and the proliferation of information didn't exist the same way either. Mm. So part of it is actually just having the availability of the information. And then there's the added layer of now, how do you adapt society to this new information that is now being spread more widely? Because to your point, a lot of it is also cultural. Like, where do you live? Who do you spend your time with? How are the social constructs in the place that you exist? dictating your sense of self whether that relates to your masculinity or femininity or your just really any opportunity around you or how you speak about your mental health and so i feel like the thing that really intrigues me about what you said too is is how self-aware we can become once you said you had the seed planted and you've been watering it since and i love that analogy because it's so true it's like it wasn't enough to just have that thought you wanted to understand yourself. Definitely. And I'm glad you brought up like the parent thing. Cause like often when I think, when I talk about it and talk about it openly, I think I, I worry that my mum and dad are going to hear this and go, Oh, Simon blames us for everything that's happened. I've never liked that. It's they did what they knew thought that they had to do to be in, in their world. They grew up in a different time to what I grew up in. They were working hard. I think mum and dad had several jobs. They weren't just nine to five jobs and often we'd be home by ourselves just living life like what mum and dad were out at work or whatever and so they did the best with what they had the tools that they had at the time and the reason i mentioned growing up in the 80s and 90s before social media is because now we have social media and now we have smartphones and so you know if you're 10 and you're experiencing depressive symptoms you can just go on your phone in your lunch break at school and go okay this is what i'm feeling and it pops out dr google all these potential <laughs> issues that you might have yeah but that might be a prompt for you to go oh, i need to go see a doctor Whereas I didn't have that like growing up, like it, there was no, the only time I went to a doctor was when I was physically ill, not mentally ill. And so they did the best with what they had. And, but over time now we're starting to learn more about it. It's not that mental health wasn't around back then, because there was certainly research and I've read lots of research in my social work degree. And this has been going on for decades. I just wish we had it available in my, in the encyclopedia 
Encyclopedia Britannica right, that we right. had at school like, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can we get the M Encyclopedia and just start reading about this? Yeah. I also want to comment on what you said too about how parents doing the best that they can with what they had. And I think I have the exact same sentiment when I talk about my parents. In fact, I remember when I started going to therapy, having that reservation and being like, they were good parents. They're good parents. They're good people. Like, I don't want to like shit on them and act like they're so horrible and look what they've done to me. And at the same point in time, to be completely honest about my own experience, I have to put aside for a second that people-pleasing nature mm. and be like, "Yeah, you might not like what you're hearing. I don't say this to offend you. I love you. And also, these things affected me, and it's important yeah. for me to talk about it. And that's how we get to this place. And also, we have microphones. So if they're going to hear it, they're going to hear it. And I think <laughs> sometimes you just have to just be like, that is what it is. And I am an adult now, and I will be accountable to that but also like, yeah. don't yell at me or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. And I guess this is part of owning it and owning our journey as well and being able to reflect. And that's why through Mindful Men and sharing my story, I hope to inspire other guys particularly to share their stories. Instead of bottling it up either with alcohol or just bottling it up with and it turning into rage or domestic violence, which often happens for guys, go to and talk to someone. And it could be their best mate or their partner or a doctor or a therapist and just open up about this stuff and go okay yeah I grew up in a similar thing to Simon and this is what I was taught on the football field or this is what I was taught on the basketball court or this is what I taught in drama classes or choir it's not just being a man on a footy field it's being a boy or a man in any aspect of life and going okay I think when we start to reflect like that and start to look at bigger things and ourselves and w within the bigger context of, of the world, we can get some real change happening there and, and commitment to change. And it's long-term change as opposed to Band-Aid fixes as well. Because then we can start to, to mend those roots that have broken, planted in ourselves that we don't like and we've never liked and we want to change for that as well. So like even I, I sent an email to someone this morning. I got an email in my inbox from someone I've interviewed on my podcast and she was talking about alcohol, a relationship with alcohol and how she used it as a tool to socialize and deal with anxiety. But what it was actually doing was fueling more anxiety and depression as well and even burnout as well. But the only way she could really reflect on that was to cut the alcohol out of her life. And so particularly, and that's the same for me, like in Australia, we also have a huge drinking culture. And I started drinking when around 16 or so and it's now, I feel like it's now a huge part of my identity so that when I don't drink, and I haven't been drinking since mid-September, people go, oh, Simon's not drinking. What's wrong? I'm like, nothing's wrong. I want to be dry for a while. I want to feel like I don't feel like I need to sit down and watch the football with a beer which was a habit. Exactly, and, right? Because we get, yeah. we also condition ourselves to believe that we need this thing to help us regulate our emotions instead of yes. dealing with the actual emotions because, so marijuana is legal here and it's, that's for me, that's the vice. And when I was at the peak of toxicity in the last relationship I was in, I was a hundred percent numbing my feelings. A hundred percent. Okay. Like, I just want to relax. I'm doing this because I feel like it, not because I feel like I have to. And there's a very important distinction between that because I similarly with alcohol, especially I, my body reacts really poorly to it. It's like, why am I like, I might like the taste of something, but I'm like, I can't, it, I don't even have to be hungover. I might just be sick that night and I've had one or two drinks. I just, mm. why am I doing this? And I literally said to my partner a couple of weeks ago, 
I think I had one drink while I was out. I had a terrible headache. I felt super nauseous. And I was like, just don't, like when I say, oh, I'll just have one drink, just tell me not to. Be like, do you remember what you feel like? Is it worth it? I'm sitting here completely sober having this conversation with you right now. And I'm completely capable of it. So what is it other than this internalized expectation that I need to do that to go out and be social yeah. or a conversation or an experience with somebody? Like, I don't. It's interesting that the comment is, what's wrong with Simon? He's not drinking. When in reality, it's like quite the contrary. It's like nothing's yeah. wrong. In fact, I don't feel like drinking, which is great. Yeah, definitely. And it's and we. I was reflecting on this email. I wrote back to her and I was reflecting on her email. I was like... I hold on to all those good fond memories of drinking like you know, having an amazing time at this party or whatever. And that's cool. But I forget all the times that I was sitting on the couch by myself, drinking six to seven, eight beers on a Friday night. Everyone's going to my, my wife's going to bed or whatever. I'm watching the football and I think I'm doing it because I'm enjoying the football, but what I'm actually doing is slowing down my brain and trying to cope with mental illness. That was for a long time undiagnosed. Yeah. And so again, that's, it's, that's only been a thought in my brain for about the last two years as well. I think it's the social work is making me reflect a lot about life. And even particularly, like, I remember the reason I stopped in mid-September is I noticed that my son, who's five, he was starting to talk about beer a lot. And I'm like, okay, so what I'm doing, he's now, he's, he's noticing this. And then his little sister starts to copy him and it becomes oh, yeah. a bit of a, oh, okay, yeah, what I'm doing is they're noticing what I'm doing. And if I'm going to break the cycle of my son, particularly growing up in an environment, in a world where he can just be him, his true self and not put a mask on in, in terms of mental health, masculinity, or, or whatever that looks like for him, drinking is a huge part of that as well. And I don't want him to feel like drinking is, is, a, is just normal cultural thing. It, it's something that he needs to make a informed decision about when he's at the right age as well and also doing it for the right reasons doing it for the enjoyment of that maybe the taste or whatever rather than the bottling it all the things up and using it as a coping mechanism so yeah that was a bit of a prompt for me and it's timely discussion because i had that email this morning and i've been reflecting on that recently as well so i appreciate you sharing that too because i think that I do believe in that divine timing of things overall in life over the past few years especially i feel connected to those moments, even when they're seemingly small in the grand scheme of things, but great timing for this conversation. And I think it's interesting too, because my sister has two young kids, they're two and four, and they're shockingly emotionally intelligent. I'm almost, I literally witnessed my four-year-old niece spin a chair around so my two-year-old nephew could sit across from her because he, he does this thing real, he'll go silent. He's bottling it up. He doesn't like how he feels. He's upset that he got in trouble. And it's, I will be honest, I wouldn't say as being mindful of mental health, I, I try to be cognizant of maybe he doesn't have the words. And that's why he's just being a bit as I would refer to it, or my parents would have referred to me being dramatic. But he goes a little catatonic and is just so sad. And but you can see this look on his face that he feels almost ashamed that he's gotten in trouble. And so I'm like, Bo, why can't, you know, why can't you talk? Why, you know, are you upset that grandpa told you couldn't throw that because they were playing a game and he threw a piece of it? And my dad didn't yell at him. He just told him like, no, you can't do that. And so he walks away. He's upset. He's pouting. And I'm sitting on the deck and he comes out and then my niece follows and she sits down in a chair and she spins this other one around for him and they're facing each other. And she goes, 
talk to me, Bo. Are you upset that grandpa said no? And I'm like, <laughs> that's amazing. I love it. I was like, first of all, how beautiful of a moment to witness. My dad yeah. walks out and I'm like, they're having a therapy session. <laughs> but it was something that really sparked in me this, this hope for the future generations that because we're in that group of people that are basically trying to break the chains of trauma and actually talk about it. I would consider it a blessing and a curse in a sense where it's like, I think about generational trauma a little bit like the way that coal can become a diamond under enough pressure. And we're just like, okay, we can't, we can't do it anymore, guys. We can't, I can't take it. Somebody needs to talk about it. We need to release the pressure. We need to like stop this madness and so i'm watching the way that my sister parents and the way that she's getting her kids to emote so that they can express how they feel she can understand she'll apologize which is like a whole different level and then i'm like what parents apologize i don't know but it's really interesting to see how they respond too because I feel like my parents could potentially look at it and be like, oh, they're being so sensitive. And in our minds, it's, oh, thank God they're being sensitive. They're being aware. They're trying to resolve those emotional issues on their own, even at such a young age. And it's really inspiring. And I have to imagine what you were seeing with your son and your daughter. It's that feeling of we can do better for them. Yeah, definitely. And since becoming a dad, it's like really honed in on that kind of this whole concept and this thought about new age parenting as well. And I remember growing up and I think when, with my OCD, so my OCD has a huge amount of perfectionism that's attached to it. I need to have everything perfect or do things in a certain way. And if I don't, if that doesn't happen, like that's when the anxiety raises and I start checking, doing my checking behaviors and all that type of stuff in overdrive. But I remember growing up and if we got in trouble, we were like, we were really got in trouble. If we swore, we might get soap in the mouth. I got and soap in the mouth too. And I was telling somebody about this and I was like, this is insane to me that this is a thing that people <laughs> did. Like what? I told my son about it yesterday, actually. And he's like, oh, that's disgusting. Yes, correct. <laughs> and you know what? One, it didn't stop me from doing it again. And two, I feel like I now have a really unfortunate memory as a result of that. I'm pretty sure it just traumatized me. But it's like, what a difference it makes to be able to acknowledge it and know I definitely wouldn't do that because I didn't want it done. And it's like the um, do as I say, not do as I do mentality, I think, that I would occasionally get from my parents and, and also have that said to me. It's like, you're creating a cognitive dissonance. You're mm. telling me to be one way, but you're not accountable to yourself being that way. And so I imagine also to circle back to the concept of masculinity too, it's this feeling of you need to contain what you're feeling. You need to present yourself in a way that is acceptable quote unquote, right? Um, to society, to family, to people, to whatever. And at the end of all of it, it's like, how much are the people who are instructing us to do that holding on to the things that they wish they could let go of? Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you raised that like masculinity concept. Cause when I became a dad, I found myself saying similar things to what my dad was saying initially. And, and I think it was that whole, like when we got punished, we bottled it up and we get punished in a certain way, which involved a smack or a yelling or whatever. And I remember like, you know, the first, I've only smacked Gus once or twice and I hated it. Like I thought, no, like that's how I was disciplined. When you become a parent, you go into automatic mode, like all the stuff from your childhood comes to the fore and you go, okay, that's how I was parented. This is how I have to parent. Yeah. I remember smacking him on the wrist once and I was, I felt 
absolutely terrible. I'm like, no, this is when the 2020s now was not the 1980s. It's not the 1990s. This is not all right. And I apologized to Gus and, and we talked about it when things calmed down and I just felt like shit. I hated it. And so a lot of this stuff is for new age parents or I say new age, I mean parents now, like today, oh, for sure. is that they're grappling with the past and that trauma of their upbringings in whatever way trauma is like people often think that trauma is huge. You have to have this hugely traumatic thing, but trauma can be very small and it can just plant a seed, but a seed that's growing weeds as opposed to a nice flower in your mind and in your body as well. So it doesn't have to be huge trauma. It could be just like memories of being smacked and stuff like that. Like that could be a traumatic event. It doesn't have to be like you fell off a building and survived or whatever. And so like a lot of people like in our, in this age bracket who have been up in the 80s, 90s, maybe even earlier as well, who are now realizing with the world of social media and 24-7 news cycles and there's evidence everywhere for this, that and something else is that, oh yeah, like what we did growing up wasn't right. So there's this new way of doing things. Maybe it's talking to our children more gently. It's learning about attachment theories. It's yeah, doing all this type of one, stuff. It's that's huge all, that's at the moment. The zero to six, right? That's the yeah. time. We don't have the words to express the things that we're feeling, but everything's being developed there. I remember going to therapy and being told it all, essentially being told, not flat out, but like, tying it back to childhood and me just immediately brushing it off. No, nah, it's not childhood. It's not childhood, <laughs> clearly. And then I just, I come back around like it's totally childhood and things yeah. that like I didn't even understand could be to your point trauma. But you're the other thing that's important to remember is that when you're that young and that's a foundational thing that is, is happening for you, you don't have really any other life experiences. So that's really significant to you. It's like mm. one of the first experiences you're having in life. So of course it's big because everything else is so small. <laughs> yeah. And so my kids are in that zero to six age bracket as well. It's unpacking all the stuff from my background so that I'm not offloading it onto them or even subconsciously offloading it onto them. Like maybe when they've done something bad, I'm not yelling at them. I'm not reaching for that soap to put in their mouth. And they're not getting the smack and all that type of stuff. So I'm consciously trying to be the guy that I wish I had in my life when I was eight and developed OCD. Because I never had someone to talk to about this. I never talk about it with dad, never, or mum. It wasn't until I was, after I was diagnosed, I'd even told mum that I had mental health issues. Can I ask a I mean, question? Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, finish your thought and then I'll ask. And I think I finished it just then. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love it. Curious. You said you developed OCD when you were eight. There's something that was the impetus for that, if you're open to talking about it? Um, I t up until then, mum always used to say I was a happy go like a kid. Nothing would phase me. And I think that was pretty true. Like nothing would phase me. I was always laughing, always smiling, always cracking jokes. I'd laugh at the silliest things and nothing phased me. But then I don't know what happened. And I remember like the entry into OCD. So it was like I was in a schoolyard and some kid said to me, Simon, if you don't talk for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. Most people in society would just brush that off and go, no, that's just the silliest thing I've ever heard. But I looked, I thought that was like, that was the gospel that like, this is going to happen if I don't talk. I wish I knew about monks back then <laughs> because they'd still have their voices. <laughs> so I thought if I didn't talk for a minute, I would lose my voice forever. So I started humming to myself and doing this compulsive behavior of checking that my voice was still there. And then that, I've, that lasted about two years and I'd do that all day, every day. And, but over time, 
when we were in my early teens, mum and dad split up. And so me and my youngest brother went with mum. And so I became the man of the house and whatever that means in, in, in the context of society. But I think it, for me, it was a protector mode and I had to make sure that we were safe because I felt unsafe a lot. And so I would spend hours, two to three hours every night checking the house was locked and the doors, windows were locked that nobody can get in and break in and steal our stuff or hurt us or kidnap us or whatever. And but also like that the house, that the appliances were all switched off, like the stove and the iron particularly, and the, the fridge door was closed properly so that wouldn't start a fire because I also had this fear of burning down in, in our sleep. And so this that point is when depression really came into my life because not only was I doing the checking for hours every day, and it even went into like checking my school bag that I had on my books, that I had my wallet, my keys with me because if I lost them, I was worried about identity theft or people realizing where I live and coming to hurt us and stuff like that. And the perfectionism here, I've been reflecting on it recently, like having checking all this stuff and being perfect with everything was fueled by this. If we did something wrong growing up, like we were yelled at and berated. Even on the football field, if we weren't perfect footballers and dad would teach us to kick with our left foot and our right foot and all this type of stuff. If we had a bad game or we were mucking around at training, like we would hear about it. And so like I developed this sense of needing to do everything perfect because I want to, wanted to avoid getting in trouble. Yeah, so lot. it was a mechanism to to keep yourself safe as it sounds. Yeah. You mentioned when your parents split and you took on that role, as you described, it's a man of the house. It's a term that we're all, I'm pretty sure, familiar with. It's really pervasive. But how old were you, did you say? I was in my early teens, start of high school, really. And yeah, like, I was, and growing up in, in the area that we grew up in as well, you'd hear about break-ins and stabbings. And there were stabbings at my school. So I went to a rough school and it was like being, the news being there one day and there was a stabbing outside at the bus stop with the students stabbing each other and I remember like my first day of high school. So it was year eight, year eight here. And I remember seeing one kid get his nose broken, another kid getting it, another girl getting a head smashed against a brick wall. This is on my first day of high school. So I'm I was like, going to ask what made you feel yeah. unsafe. And now I'm, you've given me a yeah. good hint. <laughs> These things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, and I spent my entire high school absolutely petrified of everyone. Like, but no one would ever know it. Like I wore the mask really well. Going to and, ask, did it uh, like affect your ability? Do you feel to create connections with people? Not really, because I was like a pretty reasonably popular. Like I had a lot of friends, and I think being good at sports helped because I'd be the fastest kid in the grade, and because I did athletics as well, not just football. I could play most sports. I was a basketballer. <laughs> I needed to run, <laughs> but. I was okay making friends, but there was always groups like the tough, we called them the tough kids. And there was always that group or whatever that I would be petrified of. And then we'd have to catch the bus home. So I'd have to go to the main train bus station. And because you see so many fights, you're just wondering when's your turn because fights could happen and you didn't even know the person. They just come up and start bashing into you and stuff like that. So there was this huge fear and that stuck with me now, even as a dad now, I'm in a really safe part of the world on the Sunshine Coast here. And like even walking around with my kids, like I, if someone, if I see someone who I perceive as the tough guy from school, I think it's been, been ingrained from school, I avoid them. I avoid eye contact. I, I get all quiet. I get a bit weird. My, my wife's like, what are you doing? What's going on? Like I might divert 
my attention might go just for this fear of getting beat up and like it never happened and this is the thing it never happened and and so depression and anxiety fueled it but ocd was there as well just egging it on at a million miles an hour because that's when the checking stuff would happen because this overwhelming need to feel safe and the only way to do that was to check and check and check and check and it's just exhausting so i remember like in my teen years and being so exhausted by this that i just i put my head on the pillow and said oh and I said to myself, I hope I don't wake up. I just hope I suffocate and don't wake up. And something, I don't know where it came from. And it's an affirmation that I've, I, yeah, I'd never really knew what an affirmation was until the last couple of years. But I said to myself, Simon, no matter how dark today is or seems, like the sun will always rise tomorrow. And it just popped into my head. I don't know where it came from or whatever. And that's stuck with me ever since. And that, that's something I really turned to because I'm not religious or anything like that, but I don't know. I think sometimes I'd pray to, to a God or someone to just help me get through it. And I think I did that around that time as well. But I looked at this, the sun as being a beacon of warmth and hope, a new day. So it's a new possibility. And that kind of, that helped me pull my head off that pillow and just go eventually go to sleep. I had to go check some more, but <laughs> yeah, eventually get to sleep. And I've held on to that ever since, but yeah, it stuck around and it's been really hard to shake off a lot of those anxieties, stresses, but certainly when I reflect on them and it's not something I've been able to do until I was in my thirties with a lot of therapy and with the social work, social work, if anyone wants to figure out their brain and how it works, go do a social work degree because you, yeah. you'll learn a lot about your life. Totally. It's interesting too. a couple of thoughts on what you were saying, in particular around the social work side of it. My ex, while extremely toxic, had done work in social services, working with children with autism. And because I'm a very curious person and I like to know things, I would ask questions and I became so much more aware of other people and the mental health conditions that exist in the world and how my perception of them was not really accurate and that I didn't really understand the breadth, the variety of things that mm. affect us physically and mentally when it comes to things like that. And honestly, the physiological impact of mental health in decline. And then being actually in a situation where this relationship was incredibly toxic, I was constantly being gaslit. and. Having that feeling to your point, it's like, for me, it's, it's like that needing to know that you're safe physically, but there's also that like emotional safety that you're seeking in what you're doing. Did you find that was also the case with your OCD and like how you were feeling when you were doing the rituals around like what was helping you? Tell me if I'm wrong in this thought, because I don't claim to be a professional in this <laughs> regard, but is OCD like in terms of doing that, is it? attempting to be a form of emotional regulation yeah so you, you get the obsessive thought and it's like for most people it's what we, you consider an intrusive thought so it's a mm -hmm. thought that can come into your brain can be quite distressing but it can also be quite innocent as well but the only but if for most people they can just let it go just they don't think about it again and OCD mind will just constantly think about the thought and think and think and think. Oh, I'm a ruminator. That therapy has helped a lot with that. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I got to one point where I was like, I literally just need to stop thinking. I can't handle my brain anymore. So yeah. 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 <laughs> and so like you'd either try to outthink it like similar to you or the, I guess the C in OCD is the compulsive act, the compulsion or the behavior. So that was me, that humming thing for me. It was the only way to alleviate and stop that thought 
was you had to do the behavior. And sometimes the behavior is thinking about the thought, you know, we've learned that like a pure O is that kind of concept. But yeah, so you do the behavior. So a lot of checking for me, it was a lot of checking things. And when you check things and they became just right and you checked it just right, because you have to check it in a certain way. So for some people it might be, I've got to do it 10 times or mm-hmm. five times. For me, like when I'm checking the door, I have got to, ch- I've got to touch the door in a certain way and it's got to feel locked okay, in a so certain way. I'm, I want to chime in on this because there was a period in my life when I was younger and I don't really know what stopped this behavior, but for years I would have to say goodnight to my parents in not just like a specific order, but like the way that I moved around the coffee table that was near the couch, I needed to hear them say specific words to me and I'll see you in the morning or when they left, I'll see you later. So I knew in my brain, I will see you later. And little things like if I went to bed and my toothbrush wasn't facing the right way, there was no right way, (laughs) but it was like, did it feel right? That something in your brain is telling your body that it's not okay. And I had this Mm. feeling like if I, if my toothbrush isn't faced the right way that like one of my parents could die. And I like, I had these moments of obsessive compulsions and I have no idea at what point they fizzled out, but it's something that I had a discussion about with one of my friends a couple of years ago, where she was saying that she would have similar interactions with a similar fear for her family's safety. And it was like, it makes me wonder what was the thing that happened that made me start feeling like it was my responsibility to make sure everything was just so to Mm. protect my life, whether that was the people around me or the circumstance or whatever it might be. So I, I don't believe that I have had necessarily the same experience, obviously, as you have. I can understand what you mean because I would be completely falsifying my own narrative if I didn't mention that. I understand that like intense mm. anxiety that comes from feeling like if I don't do this, something severe is going to happen. Yeah. And it's that severity that really like people latch on to. And so to become a disorder, you're doing this for over an hour a day. It's not just a five minute thing, 10 minute thing. And often like in the workplace, so I've had 15 years in my public service career before I've started Mindful Man. And this is where OCD gets trivialized. It's like, oh, my OCD is killing me because this PowerPoint presentation, someone forgot to put a full stop at the end of the sentence. That's not OCD. That's that's not an overwhelming that's fear neuro- of neurotic. Yeah, neurotic. <laughs> it's not an overwhelming fear that someone will die because the full stop is not on this, this mm-hmm. sentence. It's just silly. And and like even when COVID happened, remember one guy said, "Oh, I, the people with OCD will be happy because they, everyone will be washing their hands." You know, I don't wash my hands any more than an other person does. There there are people who wash their hands because of a fear of germs and contamination. That's contamination OCD. And they're doing it to the point where you can almost see their bones coming out. Mm. They've washed their skin away. And that's hugely debilitating. But for for me, like, I don't have that. I don't care if my house is a mess because I have two kids and the house is always a mess. And so, like, people think it's being neat all the time. The neatness comes in certain areas where you have to have things. Like, it could be like your toothbrush because you might be worried that if it touches on something, you could It'll die. set the entire universe into a tailspin. 
Yeah, it could be. And, and for me, like it was, if there was a piece of paper near the stove and in the middle of the night, somehow some wisp of wind would take it, put it on there. I don't know how that, and if I hadn't checked that the stove was off properly, like the knob had to be off, like dead off. Couldn't be just slightly touched or whatever. And my wife is the person who just let it touch, doesn't care or anything like that. But I'm like, no, because if it's slightly to the left or right, we're all dying. So you went through this for about two decades without really acknowledging yeah. it in a way that was allowing you to cope with it or manage it in mm. a more sustainable way. So when you got to that point where you were like, I'm dealing with this, I, I need to acknowledge it. I need to come like to the realization that this will continue to limit my life is what it sounds like. Yeah. Then what was that experience like for you when you actually took ownership of that to be able to find more peace with yourself to be able to resolve that as much as one can? I And forgive my ignorance on this and feel free to speak to it, but I... I don't know with OCD, is that something that like does resolve with the right types of work that you can do? Or is that something that is more ingrained in you depending on like the duration of time or whatever the impetus for it might be? Yeah, I'll start off with like just the getting help part first and then remind me if I forget to talk about to the therapy side of it as well. Sure. But but I was, so I was 28 when I went into that doctor's office. and But the probably like the year or two before that, I started getting, okay, things aren't right. I've something's, I've got to get help. But what always helped me back was this, this shame around medication. And I didn't want to go talk to someone because then they just put me on medication. And I felt my mum was always on medication. And I didn't want to be someone who would spend all their life popping pills. And it was just, it was, it felt like shame. And there was a stigma associated with it for me. I understand that. I felt that way about taking medication for my ADHD and anxiety. Yeah. So I, I get that. It felt like, for me, it felt a little bit like a cop out. Like I wasn't able to. And maybe cop out's the wrong word. I think it was more like it's going to A, force me to acknowledge it, but also B, is that the way that I want to try to cope with it? Yeah, definitely. And I didn't want to be on meds forever. And but what I did was I drank instead. <laughs> and and I and I self-medicated. And remember the time as well, I was really depressed. So we'd move from Canberra. So I, I met my wife in Canberra and then we moved to Hobart. So it's another state as well. Very Similar to Adelaide where I grew up, but it was in a colder climate, you really clicky. So you, people that live in Hobart pretty much have stayed in Hobart their whole lives. And I found it hard to break into circles, social circles. And when you have a social anxiety, that's even harder again. And so I was quite depressed, but also the OCD was turning into, for me, like a workplace thing as well. And this is when I started to notice it in the workplace. It was like, you'd go to a function, like a, a social event, social drinks after work, have a great time and I probably had too much of a great time they got my dance moves on a few times and everyone used to laugh about that but then I would stress out so much about it my OCD would go into overdrive and all my anxiety did and I would replay the events of the night over and over and over again to the point where I actually forgot what really happened on the night because I was so worried, I was checking. This was like the checking behavior. I was checking that I didn't offend someone or I didn't say something I shouldn't have or didn't do something I shouldn't have because I was worried about getting in trouble at work and losing my job or whatever. This never happened, ever. But every time I went to a social thing, Christmas party or whatever, it, it would happen. And, and, I, and my, I'd spend days 
freaking out. And my wife would say, Simon, just let it go. Nothing happened. You're okay. But I couldn't let it go. And so it got to a point where I just, I recognized that I needed some help, but actually Rachel, my wife, she said, Simon, you're hurting our relationship. The way you're behaving is just, is ridiculous. You're drinking too much. You've got to go get help. Otherwise you need to get out. She gave me an ultimatum. And I trusted Rachel in the process because I'd been in other relationships previously that I was, was tried to be put into their boxes about what an ideal partner should be. But Rachel was never like that. She was always just like looking out for my best interest and she knew the person I could be. And so I trusted her in, in, in that sense. And so I took myself to the doctor and I booked myself in and saying the words, I think I've got mental health issues. That's how it came out. But it, I choked on the words as they came out. I, I'd never said those words before. It went against everything that I'd been grown up to believe about being a man was that you don't talk about this type of stuff. And it was hard to talk about, but she, I got some meds from the doctor. And, and fortunately in Australia, we get access to what's called a mental health care plan, which is subsidized counseling and therapy if you're on a mental health care plan. And so I can go to see a psychologist and it cost me half the amount of the sessions. And I knew I had depression, like I knew what depression was to a lesser extent, anxiety. I didn't know what OCD was until she said, Simon, you have OCD. You live with OCD. I'm just curious, was that a matter of you describing your own behavior and then them identifying that or providing some sort of assessment of that? Yes, yeah, so we do some assessments. So they're like just questionnaires initially and then some tests as well. So in one test, she said, she said, Simon, in this test, you're an absolute genius. And that was a test around repetitiveness. So things that I could do repetitively, I was apparently a genius. I was smarter than Albert Einstein. But then for this other one, I she said, you're way below average. So I'm not so I don't so sure you are a genius. I was like, oh, no, I wanted to be a genius. And it wasn't until... It wasn't until later that I tracked it back to eight years old and that humming thing. Like I never talked about the humming thing with the psychologist. And over the next few years, I'd go through different medications. I went through different psychologists. I've seen psychiatrists, counselors, seen a mental health social worker as well. But it's like only the last couple of years that I've identified, like, because the first few years I was like doing cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of thought diaries very boring if you're not I don't like doing homework and um, <laughs> yeah so I hated that and I felt like talking about it all the time I was just regurgitating the same stuff but we weren't going deep enough I don't think it was very superficial and I think that was me also trying to keep myself safe in those environments and just keep it on my level but the last couple of years particularly at the social work since I've started social work I'm like nah I've got to go deep I've got to start talking about these darker things and it was from there that I tracked it back to around eight years old. And then it's actually interesting. When I started my Instagram account for Mindful Men after my burnout, I didn't know this these people existed, but there's a whole community of people out there that live with OCD. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know this existed. And I learned from here, like a couple of things for people that live with OCDs on average, about 15 to 17 years from first symptom to first treatment. Wow. So I was actually aligned with that i was actually 20 years or so but yeah they, and they call it a silent condition for this reason because a it's really distressing to talk about or to experience but also to talk about and when we talk about it often it sounds so stupid and you, when you talk it out say it out loud like the humming thing like it's a really silly thing to talk about and or the fridge was going to the motor was going to explode if the door was slightly open like these things 
the worst that was going to happen to my fridge is that the food would just go off. It just There'd be a puddle of water on the floor and that would be it. But I didn't believe that. And so I found this group of people around the world that experienced OCD and in different ways as well. And then they also talked about this thing called exposure response prevention. And I've never heard of this. I've heard of, I had heard of cognitive behavior therapy through my own therapy and start of social work, but I never heard of ERP. I'm going to so, have to ask you to explain that one because I have not heard of it and I am going to guarantee most people have not. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, what is this? What is this? And I'm like, and I, I was, got to a point halfway through my degree and I'm like, okay, my OCD was really bad at the time. I was going through a lot of stress and I find when I'm really stressed, my OCD is ramped up. And so I, I go, okay, I want to try this ERP. Apparently it's the gold standard thing for OCD. And so I found someone on the coast here that does it. And I'm like, there's not many people around that even do treatment for OCD. Like it's the big ones. It's the depression, anxiety, PTSD, that type of stuff, but not OCD so much. And so I went to this doctor, to this psychologist. I got another referral for another mental health care plan. I've been on a few now. And I said, I want to try ERP. And he's like, I only know of this place. And so I went there and, and he said, why did you want to, why did you walk in the door to do this? I'm like, I've heard it's the gold standard from social media. Social media knows all. So this is why I'm here. And I've done the talk therapy. I don't want to do thought diaries. I'm not doing thought diaries. And so what I learned was cognitive behavior therapy, there's a huge focus on the cognitions, not so much the behavior. It's the changing the thoughts, understanding the thoughts and changing it. ERP comes under the umbrella of cognitive behavior therapy but it's less on thinking about the thoughts and more on the behavior. So for an OCD, it's less about thinking about the hum, thinking about losing my voice, more focus on avoiding or preventing me doing the humming thing okay. or the checking behaviors of the doors and all that type of stuff. And so it's, it just, it forms under CBT so that it's exposure. So you deliberately expose yourself to the trigger, like with the trigger so for me, every night I lock up the house, that's the trigger point. I've got to check everything every night. And then what you want to do is prevent the response, prevent the behaviors that have formed in the OCD. So for me, it was like, I've got to check the house in a certain way, like you walking around a coffee table in a certain way. Yeah. So for me, it was like, okay, how can we start to prevent this process from being drawn out like for a couple of hours? And it could be starting small and it could be just recognizing that I'm doing it in the first place. So it's saying to myself, Simon, you are checking the front door and you've checked it for the last five minutes. Just saying the words. Cause when you say it out loud, or even if you, for those of people that write it down, when you get it out of your brain into the world, it just becomes words, which disempowers it, which is a fantastic tool. I love that um, you just said that because this is exactly why therapy in like general, I feel was so transformative for me because there was so mm. much that I wasn't willing to acknowledge to myself, let alone say out loud to somebody else. And in some of the moments where I remember having those really definitive, this is a moment in my life that's happening. I'm saying it out loud and being able to be like, Whew. yeah, okay. That's, that's okay. Moment, I'm not yeah. holding on to it anymore. It's out there. It's out there now. And then you can rationalize it a bit more. Yes. Yeah. And then five minutes later, it's back in there, but it's practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just got to keep working on it. That's the whole point, right? <laughs> and so by saying it out loud is a, yeah, that had, I was in the, standing at the door at one o'clock in the morning saying things out loud. A bit weird, but 
that's what OCD is. That's what mental illness is. It's a bit weird. I'm also like uh, a bit weird separate of all of that. So yeah. it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> and then the next step was like changing the order I do things. So for OCD, you've got to do things one, two, three, four, five. And so for me, it could have been going, starting at five and going backwards or mixing it up and going one, five, three, two, four, or something like that. And so that starts to disempower the process, starts to disempower the behavior because you're telling your mind is telling your body I don't have to do it one, two, three, four, five. There is an alternate way of being, thinking and feeling and stuff like that. And so that starts to disempower again. And then it could be getting to a point where I drop off one of the numbers. So I don't do number two, step number two, which is could be the kitchen window or something like that. I just avoid that. I accept that there's going to be anxiety around it. And I was going I'm to ask going to how struggle. it made Yeah, sorry. And I was then... going to ask how it made you feel because I have to imagine that's it. I feel that sense of discomfort that must come with acknowledging that you are forcing yourself to let that yeah. be the way that it is without you checking it or trying to reduce the like thought, the rumination around it. Yeah. And so it's a lot of it is just sitting with it. So it's being mindful with it. That's why I like the mindfulness approach because you can just sit with it. You know it's going to happen. There's going to be a peak and there will be a, a lot. You will come down. And so there's a lot of that type of thing. You know, we even practice it. Like having the psychologist here at nighttime wasn't going to happen because this would happen at you know, all sorts of times of night. But what we could do in the in his office is we tried virtual reality. So we tried getting exposed through virtual reality. So for example, like me with the fear of other people, like it could be me sitting on a train, for example, a lot of public transport fear for me i would sit down and i wouldn't look at anybody but that didn't really work for me because when we did that and we were on a train on the virtual reality which was really cool but i grew up a video game kid so i knew that it wasn't real yeah that's fair <laughs> i'm like all right where's the next level i want to keep going with yeah, this totally. game <laughs> and now that's how you that's how you do it they're like here's your reward great next yeah. <laughs> next and how long could I sit here for before the world catches up with me? So that didn't work. But then we went out to the car and the car's been a huge one for me ever since I've had my license. So a lot of it is around checking that the car's safe, handbrakes on, that's not going to roll down and kill everybody in its path and leave this huge path of destruction. And so we were in his car park and we deliberately took the handbrake off. We walked away and I wasn't allowed to look at the car because looking at the car was also part of the compulsive act that I'd be checking it visually that it was still there. And so we walked away 10 meters. We were only 10 meters away from the car and we purposely looked the opposite way and we counted basically. And I had to rate the anxieties that came up and then recognize the point when it started to come down and rate that again as well. And then you can get to a point where you might not meet the classification for OCD anymore. You might not be doing it for an hour anymore. You might still be doing the behaviors, but it might not be for so long. And you might be able to use these strategies to cope well. I haven't gone back and got reassessed. I still live with it. It's not as drastic as it used to be, but it's certainly when I'm stressed and like I've got this business that I've started in August, The Mindful Man, and that's come about with a whole lot of stress. I've noticed there's periods where that's been peaking up again and I'm doing some behaviors more recently that I haven't done for a while. It might be a time to bring those strategies out and practicing them again and getting through that. But yeah, it is possible to get through it and things like ERP certainly can help and different medications are worth trying. I've been on medication now pretty much for 10 years since I got diagnosed and now I'm okay with it. It's just part of life. And I recognize that when I'm not on medication, like things can go pretty pear-shaped it's just part of my body and so it's just i don't feel the shame anymore with medication 
I'm not quite at the level where everyone's showing their medication on social media. I'm seeing that a lot lately. I think that's to destigmatize the whole concept around medication, but that doesn't really ring my bell. But mindfulness has been something that I'm really practicing as well. And I found that through my burnout recovery as a way to reconnect, find joy again, but also ground myself. So with the racing brain and racing mind, I use my five senses now through mindfulness to just bring myself back to planet earth and back to the, the being where my feet are pretty much. And so like, I love doing it on the move as well, going for a walk. And if I'm noticing that I'm not really enjoying the walk because I'm thinking about other things, I'll brush my hand along a bush as I walk past it to, to, to get that texture in the hand or take notice of the clouds or the birds or the way that the wind's moving the trees and really just notice it. So that helps calm everything as well. It helps you. And that helps rediscover the joy because all of a sudden you're looking at, you might see this a beautiful flower that you would you would have ignored because you had the blinkers on. But also you're seeing that because you're being intentionally present. It helps with, you know, with kids. Sometimes I'll be on a different planet. The kids are screaming at me. Then I realize, oh, you've been screaming for 10 minutes. What's going on? I've been off somewhere else. So mindfulness has been a huge process for me. And I love it because you can do it without anyone noticing it. But also it's not medication reliant. You don't need any money to do it. You can do it for free and you can do it in any aspect. You can do it at work. I've done it when I've been driving, when I moments where I'm feeling overcome with anxiety or I, something maybe even unbeknownst to me has triggered a response from PTSD and mm. just having to leverage that, that skill. Mindfulness is sort of like a muscle that you can build and, and you, the more you use it, I find the more apt you are to rely on it in a healthier way where it's like okay i know that i can come back to this and it's simple too right like you mentioned earlier having an affirmation before you even really understood what an affirmation was and i appreciate that so much because even just in the last couple of years i've i'm not particularly religious at all either to your earlier comment but I had been listening to a lot more philosophical stuff and like Zen Buddhist practice and just trying to inform myself more of the mental impact of giving yourself a sense of peace and allowing yourself to embrace the present and acknowledge the impermanence of things. And when you made the comment about brushing your hand against the bush or something, it honestly, it gave me a feeling like an actual like memory to be able to place yourself in the moment in which you are actually because we can be so cerebral and it's honestly i find it to be scary sometimes when i'm in my own head for too long and <laughs> not in a way that's like absolutely insane but it's like you kind of are wondering like why like what am i getting from staying in here for so long and you had mentioned your kids and i, I think about that too with my niece and nephew it's like there are some moments where it's like their innocence, their joy, their brightness that they bring to a moment, it snaps you back into it because they are so truly just existing for what is happening right then and there. And being at the beach with them this summer was a really great example of that, where it was just like it's an emotional experience for all of us because my mom's not with us anymore. And that was like our family time. And it was always really special. And you have these moments where you start to feel like really pulled away from yourself. When I feel really high anxiety or I dealt with depression for a period of time, but it's like that innate sadness and that dwelling that can happen, trying to allow myself to be like, okay, yes, I hate that my mom's not here. It hurts so much and nothing's going to make that better. But then I pull myself back and I'm like, listen to the waves crash, 
feel mm. the sand, like literally intentionally feel the sand, run my fingers through it. I would go down to the beach by myself at night and I would lay in the sand and I would just run my fingers through the cool sand and stare at the stars and listen to the water and really let myself be present in the moment to not only connect back to myself, but to feel more connected to my mom too and not so absent myself because of the sadness. And so mm. I, I can really understand how valuable that type of mindfulness is. And the more that you willfully learn about that practice, you can adapt it to fit what feels right for you. And I think that's an important thing that you mentioned. It's like, there isn't just one way to do it either. You can find what works for you. I think the sentiment around like, needing the freedom from that pain, that anxiety, that stress that comes with mental illness is a very universal feeling. Mindfulness is a great way to declutter, declutter the mind as well. And it's like putting your phone away almost and just not touching it for a week. And so like things like journaling, like people get into journaling, there's different styles of journaling, gratitude journaling. I did try that when I first experienced burnout, but I kept regurgitating the same three things. Like I'm grateful for family and grateful for having a house grateful, you know, that I'm breathing type thing. But a lot of people lose they lose faith in, the, in that kind of process and they lose the energy and they stop doing it. But one of the cool things I love to share is working with my latest psychologist. And I say latest psychologist because I shop around to find a, a good fit and this guy's good at the moment. So I'm going to stick with him. I appreciate um, you mentioning that, by the way, is that it <laughs> yeah. isn't, it, you can evolve beyond some of the providers, yes. but also don't think that because you've had one negative or subpar or not right for you experience, that means every experience will be that. Be willing yeah. to find the right fit for you when you feel like you need to. Because I think so many of the people in my life who could be benefiting and taking better care of their mental health, it would behoove them to, to try again. Yeah, definitely. That's the trap we can fall into is just settling with the status quo and not actually embracing different perspectives that's why i like the different psychologists or counselors or whoever and i go between male and female as well like traditionally i've drawn to female psychologists just because i found it easier to talk to them but i found some male ones that are really cool as well the first few were like the stereotypical male creepy psychiatrist guy with one strand of hair i'm like i'm not coming back here and this is the reason why guys don't talk <laughs> <laughs> But I found is like this latest one and he's really, he's like Zen-like. He comes from like the Eastern philosophies as well. And I really liked it. And he said, forget the gratitude journaling and the, the three things that you're grateful for because it's useless for you, Simon. What you need to do is look at your day in hourly chunks and look at it and go, okay, what did you do every hour of your day? And it could be between nine and 10. It could be going out for coffee with my wife or whatever, and then, 10 to 11, it could be doing the groceries and all the mundane stuff, but also the stuff that you might've done differently that day. He said, from that, you can pick the everyday things that you're grateful for. And so for me, it was like the coffee at, with my wife for, for that hour where we could go and have kid-free time, actually have a decent adult conversation without some drama from kids or whatever. Or it could be a, something like sitting down with your kids and doing homework or something like that. You're grateful for having that bonding time or it's grateful for going for a walk in the sun because it was a nice day. Yeah. And that really is a great way to do it because you don't regurgitate the same things unless you do exactly the same thing every day, which is, is rare. And hopefully um, you're not, just for your own And sake. hopefully you're not. 
but it's a great way to to look at and find the joy in in your days as well like you really you you were grateful that you got time to sit down and read a cool article or a book or listen to a great podcast or have a chat with someone on the other side of the world and about mental health and the things that light you up as well and i use that now i don't have to write it in a journal i just think i had to have a book and write it down like i can just do that on the move like if i'm feeling like oh, i'm feeling a bit yuck today okay Summer, what's something you did this morning that you feel grateful for? It's interesting that this is where we're rounding out the conversation because it aligns almost exactly with something that really created a change in my own behavior and how I do practice mindfulness. And I remember sitting across from my therapist and her telling me when I'm feeling overly anxious to just start naming things that I'm grateful for. And it doesn't matter how significant that thing is. Be grateful for the chair that you're sitting on because you don't have to sit on the floor. Be grateful for the sunglasses so you don't have to, so it's not too bright and your eyes aren't hurting. And in doing that and telling me gratitude and anxiety can't exist in the same moment, I was like, what? First of all, hearing that, I was like, okay, great. It's like when my my desire to work out is meh, limited, but when I do it, I genuinely feel more inclined to do it for my mental health than to be like, I'm going to get ripped. I never have. <laughs> I'm not going to start now. Okay. But we need to keep this in good shape. And, you know, I think that the way that you um, were saying a lot of people feel sort of this inherent, uh, maybe not obligation, but expectation a little bit that you document it somewhere, write it down. Oh, I've had a million different planners and things that are supposed to help me motivate. I'm like, I'm going to forget about it. I, I have a <laughs> stack of them. They're over there. They're all like four pages filled in. I don't know. Yes. And yeah. The thing that actually I began doing was when I would get out of the shower, I would stand there after I'd like dried my hair or whatever, but I would, <laughs> this is like where my weirdness comes out, but I stand there with a the towel still over my head. So like a ghost and, <laughs> but I, I'll stand there and I'll like give myself just the space and the, the quiet to be able to just be like, this is what I'm grateful for and allow myself just that moment and it'll happen throughout the day as well but i've noticed such a significant difference when i go a long period of time without having that routine that habit that ritual of giving myself just a few moments allowing myself the space to be mindful and remember that this does help me and this helps me heal and it also feels like i'm putting my energy towards something that is just better for the world and not hmm. feeling so just frustrated with the state of everything, but feeling like there are things to be grateful for. And I want to be, and I can be somebody who helps share that. And that's what I feel this entire conversation and listening to you and your story and the why behind all of it, Simon, like those are the things that I firmly believe. And I said this to my partner when we had first met and we were only talking as friends and I was like, I really believe there are a lot of people like us out there. And the beauty of the internet and the way that things are today is that we have the luxury of being able to find those people. You mentioned it with your Instagram. There mm. are communities of people waiting to be found by the people who need them. And this conversation, I hope, is one that helps at least one person and hopefully, and I'm sure more, but really look inward and start to explore what can we do for ourselves to be able to live a happier, healthier life and to be able to put our energy towards the things that are really important to us and to the people in our lives who care about us because it 
goes a long way to be able to be this vulnerable. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to share with me and also that you've put so much energy into this mission with Mindful Men because it's something that we totally need more of. And I'm just so excited to see where all of this goes for you. And I just really appreciate you being here with me today. Yeah, and I've really enjoyed it. Nikki, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk about mental health for one, but also men's mental health and focus on that. And I just hope one guy out there particularly recognizes that there's a community of other guys out there that are talking about this type of stuff. Because unfortunately, men are more likely to die by suicide. Men are more likely to be perpetrators of family and domestic violence. So if we can talk about these things, I really think that can start to lower those that data down the stats down and be more one with ourselves but also our communities around us that improves relationships with our partners our kids our friends and all that type of stuff but yeah really grateful that i can come on and share my story and loved how we went off on all different rabbit warrens that's mental illness isn't it like you're just like all over the place so i'm sure when when people are listening they'll be along for the ride just let it happen <laughs> but i truly think that the last piece that you touched on in terms of really the broader impact that these types of discussions that you're having will have on society and the next generation of mm. people, your kids, my sister's kids, like they're growing up in a world where people like yourself are showing up and saying it's okay and it's important to be who you are, be honest with yourself and it's okay to not be okay. And mm -hmm. it's important to know that you have a place to go with that and that you are not alone in that. And if anyone listening enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more from Simon and his guests as you seek to shed the stigmas um, about men showing vulnerability, check out his podcast, Mindful Men, available wherever you get your podcasts. And also you can check out his website, mindful-men.com.au and join that community of people that Simon was talking about earlier because this is a really great movement to be part of and I'm really really proud of the work that you've done in helping people really see themselves for who they are and to live better lives thanks for listening to who the fuck and if you like what you hear share the show with your friends family coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side.